Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Sam. Welcome to our third episode of Fly on the Wall Season 8. Before we begin, don't forget to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions about this year's election, be sure to look up GU Votes, a student-run initiative working to grant easy access to voting resources. This week, Sam and I interviewed Fall GU Politics Fellow Kevin Hassett. He is a former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors under the Trump administration and currently serves as a senior advisor to the president. Prior to the White House, Hassett served as an economic advisor on McCain, Bush, and Romney presidential campaigns, as well as a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. So we just wanted to kick it off by uh, asking you how you got to where you are today, um, what inspired you to pivot away from academia to work in politics and on campaigns? Yeah, thanks. And, uh, you know, it's a great pleasure to be here with you guys. And, you know, I, I think that uh, getting involved in politics was for me kind of an accident um, that I started out after graduate school as a professor at Columbia. I moved to the Federal Reserve in order to start working with the Federal Reserve staff to advise Alan Greenspan. And then I became the research director at a think tank where I still was mostly doing academic work. Uh, but then uh, as 2000, the 2000 election approached, uh, two of my close friends, Glenn Hubbard and Larry Lindsay, began advising George W. Bush uh, in his presidential campaign. And they asked me for some help. I started helping them, kind of enjoyed it. And then uh, much to my surprise, another friend a few months later um, asked me to talk to John McCain um, because he wanted to start to brainstorm about what his economic policies might be if he ran for office. And um, I agreed to, and McCain and I became really close friends right away. And McCain asked me to leave the Bush team and run the McCain team. Uh, and I agreed to. Uh, and um, at that point, I did it. So at first I went over to the Bush team to help my friends. And then I went to the McCain team because everybody thought he was at, you know, probably below 1% of the polls. Nobody thought he would win, but I thought he was a great American and deserved to have a fighting chance. And I was willing to go and, and fight with him for that. And I'm really, you know, honored that he would invite me to and had really had a blast doing it. But but then what what happened was that that I went through a career really through 2016 where I would generally um, participate in uh, presidential elections. Um, and once you have experience in a presidential campaign, then other campaigns like to have you around to ask you, like, what about this, what about that? Because you've sort of got some experience, you've seen the kind of things that can happen. And, and so I was you know, honored enough to be able to help other campaigns, but, but that was something that was kind of like a very part-time thing in the sense that I kept my full-time job as research director at AEI and would help the campaign on the side. And so, and so pretty much from 1998 through 2016 about, or 2012 really, I did presidential campaigns, uh, you know, as a kind of a, a hobby as an advisor, almost never paid, you know, always an unpaid advisor. Uh, and then um, decided to leave politics uh, and to just focus on um, basically taking the lessons I had learned over the years about what you need to do to run a good campaign and have a vibrant policy debate and turn it into open source software so that campaigns could have more sophisticated policies with more reliable numbers. And so uh, we at the American Enterprise Institute built this thing called the Open Source Policy Center, which was 
um, basically a site that you guys could go to right now and try out your own tax reform ideas and so on and then see what effect it would have on the economy, what it would cost, what the distribution of it would be and so on. And so I, so I had decided that that was kind of my swan song in politics. I was going to build this open source thing. And then it just turned out that it was pretty useful for a lot of folks and a lot of campaigns were using it. And then um, at one point, the Trump campaign uh, asked me to um, tell them who they could hire, who really knew how to use the software so that they could explore their the president's policy ideas and give them scores and things like that. And I just helped them do that. I, I didn't work for the campaign or anything. Uh, but then afterwards, I guess because I had done all that, helped them do all that technical work well, uh, then the president's team, you know, it invited me to join the administration as the chairman of the CEA. And so that's kind of what my path to where I ended up in, in the White House uh, was. But but it was mostly just like, you know, part-time work advising campaigns. And then um, the the minute that I stopped advising campaigns, then the, the person, you know, won and wanted to hire me. So maybe I shouldn't have been doing it all along, right? Maybe more, <laughs> maybe John McCain would have won if I hadn't been there. <laughs> so, so you spent... Um you know, time as a, you know, as a, as a policy guy in a, in a think tank, but then spent a lot of time working with political operatives who live and breathe political campaigns um, all the time. What was it like working with uh, political advisors from a policy advisor standpoint? You know, there's, there's actually a, a story uh, and, and um, I have a, a, a rule by the way, that, that when I, when I tell stories that are critical, then I don't use names because I, I don't want to be on a team where there's a person who's like going to go out there and then like you know, whine to the public about disagreements or, or injustices. And so, so, but I'll tell a story about like my first experience with this, which was that on the 2000 campaign, um, there's John McCain had this uh, campaign headquarters over in Alexandria. It was like this, you know, vacant warehouse that had turned into a campaign headquarters. And, you know, when we first started, there were probably more rats there than people. <laughs> you know, it was really quite a miserable place. But but the point is just that um, that John wanted to finalize, this was probably be like December-ish before the New Hampshire primaries, his platform. And he had a lot of really sophisticated, talented political advisors. And then we had this economic policy team, which, um, uh, you know, I was the head economist on. And then there was this other guy, um, John Raitt was his name, who was also, you know, the, the on the ground person that had worked in the Senate with John that was really organizationally running the policy team. And, and we were asked, I was asked to organize a meeting at the campaign headquarters where we would go through the options that we had um, for the campaign. And I had prepared a memo um, to list the options. I had taken, I had assembled a team of advisors. There are a lot of really great people on the team, like Greg Mankiw at Harvard and Doug Holtzikin, who at the time was at Syracuse, a lot of people who turned out to be very famous economists. And, and we all brainstormed about what John should propose. And we put together a list of things that we thought he should choose between. And um, I go in and I'm running the meeting. Uh, and uh, then the, somebody comes in and starts handing out the papers of the options that we want to debate. And um, there were, you know, the things that we had said were on the list, but then there were like almost as many things, you know, below what we had said um, that no one had ever talked to me about. 
that were stuck in there by like the, the political types that had like maybe polled five people and they thought it you're in a focus group this works well or something like that and the proposals like the the you know the things that were added there were a lot of things that were kind of nonsensical or certainly not anything that an economist would want to try to propose or defend uh, and so I got very nervous because I was a political neophyte and I didn't really know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to run the meeting. I'm supposed to be respectful. But somebody like screwed with my meeting and added like all this stuff to my documents that I'm handing out. And what am I supposed to do? And um, and so I just I wasn't really sure how I was going to handle it. But I just started the meeting and then I started to say, so we're here to meet about, um, you know, our policy proposals. We've got a sheet in front of us uh, that has them all and we're going to go through them one by one. And then uh, John interrupted me, he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute here. I, yeah, I, I want to, uh, I want to, you know, make one, one thing kind of clear here because I want to use our time efficiently that I'm looking at your list and like everything below this point right here, uh, it's bullshit. Sorry, it's a direct quote. It's bullshit. I don't want to talk about this stuff. Like I'm not gonna. I'm not the kind of guy that's gonna propose stuff like that. Um, and so I didn't have to do anything. I did. Like I. I and then we talked about the other things, and he adopted a bunch of the things. And I think he was pretty happy that he did. I thought he had a great platform. Um, and I didn't have to have a conflict with the sort of politicals that you know managed that somehow you know ambushed me with you know changing my list. Um, well, anyway. Uh, this is the, the the funny end of the story is that maybe the next day, maybe the day after um, the the Wall Street Journal ran a story about the McCain campaign. Uh, and in, in the story, they said, you know, McCain is really dissatisfied and upset with uh, ineffective economic advisor Kevin Hassett, uh, who had to be taken out to the woodshed by McCain uh, for you know being so ineffective or something about like that. Um, and, and the story was completely false, but had clearly been planted by one of the political guys who was, you know, angry about what had happened in the meeting. <laughs> and so that was my baptism in, in like the sort of the place, the space between academics and policy and politics. I think that's also um, a really great example of something you do really well, which is you spent a lot of time on camera at press briefings for an economist. Um, how do you communicate economics and policies to people in an engaging way, um, especially from the administration? You know, I, I think that, uh, that the, again, I, I'm not sure that, that I would be effective in any way in training anyone to do television. I think that that because uh, you know way before uh, it probably uh, was appropriate given my place uh, in uh, my career trajectory, I was on TV helping Senator McCain in part because all the senior people uh, that normally might advise a candidate were on the Bush team already, and everybody thought McCain wouldn't win, and so no one wanted to work for him, and so he had to have this you know schmuck guy who was uh, in 2000. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I was, I was 38, um, so that's pretty young <laughs> to be, right, the main guy. Um, so, so in any case, uh, I think that the part of TV is just that, that like anything else, if, if you do it a lot, then you get used to it, and you're, um, the big risk is obviously that you'll get kind of nervous and not be yourself, but once you've done a lot, then you can sort of be yourself. But what I've always tried to do is, is um, what I'm doing right now, which is just be myself and be you know, responsive, authentic, don't have talking points, 
um, but you know, genuinely as an economist, try to answer the questions truthfully in a way that folks can can understand. And um, the good thing about economics, as opposed to physics or a lot of other things, is that most of economics is incredibly intuitive and really easy to explain. Um, you know, from like in the White House, if you're saying, you know, hey, 250,000 people who were unemployed a month ago got jobs last month. It's not the most complicated of concepts that there are people who didn't have a job who have a job. Uh, and, you know, or hey, uh, you know, prices have gone up a lot. And so that's going to reduce demand because things are more expensive and people don't like to buy things if they cost too much. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty obvious point. So I think that most of the time economics is pretty easy to explain. Um, but one of the problems I think that the sort of bad communicators uh, in economics have uh, is that um, Jeremy Bentham has a, a wonderful essay uh, called, I, I believe I've got the title right, On Argument. And I encourage everyone to go read it because it's short and it's wonderful. Um, because, and, and everybody who's listening to this podcast or everybody who goes to Georgetown presumably enjoys arguing. <laughs> and so seeing a great philosopher write about arguing and argument, um, it, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty stimulating. But in any case, it, the thing that really stuck with me about his essay on argument is that he talked about sort of like good arguments, good ways to argue and bad ways to argue. And um, the, the sort of lowest form of argument Bentham identified is something that he called appeal to authority. And so an, an argument of appeal to authority is to basically just say, well, you know, science says this is the right answer. Or, you know, um, you know, my friend Glenn Hubbard, you know, he's a brilliant economist. And so I'm just picking a friend here so that it's not a nasty point. You know, Glenn Hubbard says that, you know, it's the GDP is going to go up. And so therefore GDP has to go up. Right. And, and, and so that that form of an argument is very commonly used by economists. Um, and I think very, it's a very unsatisfying for viewers. And there are a lot of economists that you've noticed that just generally professors as a whole across all disciplines um, tend to have uh, opinions of themselves that um, are above perhaps the, the opinions of, of their contributions to society that the rest of us have, but that there's a lot of overconfidence in the professoriate. And, and, and so economics professors that have that problem, uh, have, they, they employ a, a form of argument that's uh, worse, that's below that ever envisioned by Bentham. He said appeal to authority is the lowest form of argument, but their form of argument is appeal to authority, uh, but the authority is themselves. Uh, and, and, and so, so that their, their attitude is, well, since I say this is true, then like, who are you? You know, I, I've got a Nobel Prize. You know, I mean, Grace, you don't have a Nobel Prize. Who are you to disagree with me, right? I, I, the, 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 and you see that all the time, right? You, you, you see that, that approach. And, and, and so I think that the folks who are bad communicators don't understand that, that they need to let go of the sort of temptation to appeal to their own authority and open up to actually having a conversation with people who are trying to figure out whether they should be believed. Definitely, and, and, and speaking of, um, of communicating uh, economic policies and ideas, uh, the question on a lot of our uh, listeners' minds is, uh, is the Trump administration, what does discussion and policy development look like inside the Trump White House? Sure, it's, it's a great question, and I think it's very similar to other White Houses. Uh, in fact, uh, one a person who worked for me at the Council of Economic Advisors uh, on my staff, uh, Casey Mulligan, who's a University of Chicago economist, just wrote a book 
uh, where he gave a lot of anecdotes about the kind of stuff we did. Yeah, he was there uh, really uh, starting in, uh, in, in into my second year uh, there. But the book is is pretty interesting, and I think that basically what happens in any White House is that the president will say something like, "Hey, I, you know, we need to have an infrastructure plan that you know makes our infrastructure you know 21st century ready." And then what will happen will be, there'll be like people whose job it is, like the Department of Transportation and other places and people in the White House who coordinate across agencies to think about infrastructure. And then what will happen is that the, the sort of um, deputies to the principals will all meet and aggregate the wisdom of all the different people, go through all the options, sort of like we talked about on the McCain campaign, and then um, decide which are the best ones. And then they present those uh, best options to the principals. And so as a CEA chair, I would have been one of the principals as would be like the treasury secretary and, and secretary Chow, secretary of transportation. And then the principals would meet say in the Roosevelt room, they would go over the proposals that were agreed to be the best ones from the deputies. And then the principals would argue about them and decide what the best proposals are. And then if they agreed that, you know, obviously we have to do number three and number five, then we'd go into the oval and we'd say, sir, we've studied the matter carefully and we recommend you do number three and number five. And we'd talk about why with the president and then he'd decide whether he thought our arguments were good enough or our support was good enough. And then he might say, yeah, okay, we'll do three and five. Or he might say, you know, I, I, it doesn't feel right to me. You need to go back to the drawing board. Um, I don't like this about three and I don't like that about five. Um, and that would be the most common way uh, that it would go. I'm not saying the last one, but that we would all agree as principals what the president ought to do. And then we go in and we tell him and then he'd do it or not. Um, and uh, yeah, I haven't really tried to recollect the proportion, but I think that there were a lot more do's than nots. Uh, but the other thing that would happen would be that in the principals meeting, that there'd be sort of, you know, disagreement. Um, and that the disagreement would be perhaps strident um, you know, I've seen a lot of swearing, uh, you know, when, when people were really emotional about things they care a lot about. And then at that point, what the chiefs of staff, and I was there for four of them actually, would do is they would say, okay, well, the principals haven't come to agreement. So then you go to the Oval and you say, Mr. President, we've, uh, you know, we, we've studied the thing you asked us to study and we've sort of divided up into two camps. There's, say, the Hassett camp and then the Navarro camp. That would be something that was pretty common in trade. And um, then, you know, and then you say, so I'd like the Hassett camp and the Navarro camp to present you with their arguments. And then at that point, we would present the arguments uh, to the president for doing this or doing that. And uh, he would stimulate debate. Um, he really enjoys uh, watching people really fight for what they think. Um, he, he uh, tests both sides and then, and then he makes the call. And those, those type of meetings are pretty common too. Uh, and uh, it's a final thought about uh, President Trump's style that I really admire, which is that the, the problem of being president uh, for anybody, uh, whether it be you know, Vice President Biden or President Obama or W. Bush or Trump, the problem of being president is that you've got to make decisions about things every day that you've never thought about ever in your whole life because an entire government. And that there's issues that come up about whether we should let them put this mine in Alaska or 
you know, change the fuel economy standards or something. There are decisions that come up every day uh, that you have to make a sound decision about because Americans' lives depend on it. And you have to have people around you uh, within specific areas that you trust um, who will guide you towards like the right answer. Uh, and the problem is that it's pretty easy, like if you only have a person with like one view, to have that person become kind of like the czar of infrastructure or the czar of trade or something like that. And then um, over time, uh, if I were president, I'd start to wonder whether I was being presented, you know, truthfully with all the options or whether I was only getting the things that, you know, Hassett wants to do. Uh, and, uh, and, and what the president does that I think is really admirable is he understands that having people with really broadly divergent views on the staff is a service to him. Uh, because it's really easy to figure out like the bounds of what one might think about, say, his tariff policy. Uh, if he's got, you know, people who really like them and people who don't really like them arguing about them in front of him. And I think that's a great way to acquire information. And he, his basic model, I think, is to try to have people, like when there are things that, that are potentially complicated enough that there's not necessarily a, an obvious right answer, um, people, he always wants to have people with opposing views. And, and so even a lot of times when the group would have a, like a unanimous, almost unanimous view, if there was like one dissenter, uh, then the chief of staff would send the one dissenter in and say, well, the group totally agrees that this is what we ought to do, but Mr. Dissenter over here thinks we shouldn't. And then the president would even want to hear from him just to make sure he wasn't getting, you know, railroaded by his own staff. Yeah, definitely. And, and certainly one of the greatest challenges um, that the economy and the Trump administration has faced is COVID. It's on everybody's mind. Um, and we've seen a lot of uh, changes to everyone's daily life. Um, so from your perspective, um, how do you think the economy has changed uh, long term due to COVID-19 in terms of working from home, you know, aggregate supply and demand, all that kind of thing? Well, I think that um, a thing to remember about financial crises and economic crises is that they creep up on you sometimes. Um, and if you go back and look at the Great Recession, then we had a kind of collapse of housing markets, but then we started to have, you know, basically a financial collapse uh, almost a year later. Uh, and so that, you know, it's a good time for everyone to just take a deep breath and be a little bit worried about, like, even if we fixed COVID right away and had a vaccine tomorrow, about the other shoes economically that might drop. Um, I was looking at the data just a little bit earlier today. And, um, you know, for example, in the District of Columbia, where we are, um, it's the most shut down place in the country. 35% um, as of this morning, and I was looking at the data of businesses um, are closed. Um, more than 50% of uh, workers um, are not going to work. Um, and uh, there's, you know, you can't keep your business closed and have your workers stay home but still have to like accumulate debt on your rents and things like that without eventually running into a problem where you just decide to shut the business for good. And so I think that the question about like, what's the economic risks, the long run economic effect of COVID, um, it's, it's an open question. It's something that it's, there's a very big risk that it's going to be that we have a very, very long recession because you know basically we stayed shut for so long that we put most of our businesses out of business. 
And if you think about, uh, you know, again, uh, Brooks Brothers, just to name a company, right, is like this clothing uh, company, a clothier that, you know, they, they clothed Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> so, so, I mean, they've been around for a long time and, you know, they went bankrupt um, already this year. Uh, and, and so the, the disruption from it, I think, is the first thing. I think that the, the second thing, and um, there's an economist at the University of Tennessee, a brilliant economist named Marianne Wanamaker, um, and people could Google her and go look, um, but, but she, she alluded uh, to what you were talking about, Sam, which is that the um, future of work, people have been talking about how you know, we might be replaced by robots, we might, you know, re remote work more often, and, and all these things that you could imagine that artificial intelligence, machine learning, and, you know, robots and everything else might start to do to us. And she basically has said that COVID has really accelerated the future of work, that the future of work is starting to happen now, um, because machines, you know, can't give us COVID, really, um, but people can. And, and so I think that that is something that, let's just say that we dodge a bullet, we get firms open up again, we get a vaccine soon enough so we can go back to normal really fast, uh, that then I think that future work effect is something that we're going to really have to focus on. But for me as an economist right now, the thing I'm nervous about is that we've had this sustained shutdown, and I really, really worry that the wave of bankruptcies that might follow from it is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. Yeah, for sure. Um, so kind of as a follow-up to that, what, what, in your opinion, will it take to really get our economy back? to those pre-COVID levels? Um, for, first of all, surprisingly, that there are a heck of a lot of states uh, that are um, already back um, to where they were a year ago. And um, in terms of uh, the, you know, looking at their um, credit card spending in the state and things like that. And so, uh, you know, there has been a surprisingly rapid recovery um, and of course, the, the places that have done that have balanced the, the people of the state, the governors of that state, have decided to balance the risks of the increased spread of COVID with the sort of risks of, you know, a massive wave of bankruptcies because you're so uh, cautious that you just keep everybody locked up and shut down. Uh, and uh, so if you do open up more then you will have more cases. You know, DC has uh, very, very few cases, but you know that th their uh, metro ridership right now is, I think, last I checked, four percent of what it was last year. Um, that the number of commuters coming in and going to work here through all forms of transportation is about ten percent of what it was last year. Um, and and so I think you know, my my view is that the DC hasn't really balanced those risks particularly cleverly at all. Um, and, you know, there's, there's other factors too, uh, like uh, schools closed, schools being closed, uh, you know, the European countries have kept their schools open because they think, you know, having kids, uh, you know, go to school every day is very important for their development and, and it, the risk of losing a year of schooling is, you know, significant enough that it balances out against the risks of increased spread of the disease. You know, we've not, for the most part in the U.S., made that call. Um, and a recent paper by a Stanford economist suggests that because of the lost year of education, 
that the kids who have been locked out of school, um, you know, basically pre-college, uh, so, so looking at elementaries and high school students, uh, will have a lower uh, lifetime income of about 3% because of the re reduction in human capital. Um, and so, so anyway, so, so that the, the COVID, I, to, to finish, I think that the, the COVID uh, problem is both an economic one and a health one. Uh, and that uh, if COVID were something, as the health experts told us last February and March, that it was going to go away by the summer, uh, then, you know, shutting down and then opening up was the right call. Uh, but if COVID is something that's basically going to linger for a long time, then you have to think about how you can try to keep your society going uh, while minimizing the risks and protecting uh, the people who are uh, most at risk. And I think that we're at that latter stage now in most states in the country. We'd like to end all of our podcasts on a lighter note. Um, so we have two real quick questions for you uh, in our lightning round. Just say the first thing that pops into your head. So the first question in the lightning round is you ran the White House Saturday basketball games. Um, when you did, who was the best player? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess uh, I would say that it was me. But what there's a guy named Tim Fitzgerald that would dispute that. But, but you, we could ask Tim to, to make a guest appearance on the podcast. <laughs> But, oh. but it shows what a sorry lot we are, um, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's one book everyone interested in economic policy should read? Gosh, that, you know, I, I, I'm going to be non-responsive in an uncollegial way to that question just in the following sense, that I think that, um, that there are a lot of people who really care about learning about the economy uh, and, but don't want to be economics majors. And, and then um, folks like that at a cocktail party or at a social event will ask me exactly your question. And it's a really good question. So I don't mean to you know, insult it. But anyway, the, the thing I'd like to say to people is that if you want to learn about the economy, start to treat the economy like your favorite sport. You know, watch it every day. Read the box scores. So when the jobs report comes out tomorrow, is on Friday, I guess the podcast won't play today, so I'm not supposed to say tomorrow. But when the, you know, when the jobs report comes out tomorrow, I'm going to be on CNN at 9:30 talking about the jobs report tomorrow, and it's going to be for me fascinating to see what it is. Is it more than I thought? Less than I thought? How come? You know, are there places where everything's going nuts and places where they aren't? And then how come that's happening? And so I think that the right answer is that if you really want to start to think. Uh, about economics in a way that's useful for you in your life, you should start just actually, you know, going to the business pages or going to the CNBC or the Wall Street Journal and just reading the stories about the economic data that came out. You know, a final thought on that. I know it's just like a lightning round, right? Sorry, I'm not Mr. Lightning. The, the, uh, the like new home sales right now, new home construction is the highest it's been since 2006. Uh, and that's kind of interesting, right? Given what we've been going through. Uh, and then uh, just for yourselves, you know, after you hang up from this podcast, noodle about why it is that precisely now, housing construction is the highest that it's been since 2006. Uh, and, and then as soon as you start doing that noodling, um, you're, you're becoming an economist. That's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for that great advice and everything you've shared with us today. Um, that's a wrap on our end. So thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you. It's great. It's great to do this podcast. So great. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. And if you want to hear more from Kevin Hassett, be sure to sign up for his discussion group, Economic Theory and Policy in the Real World. 
Mondays, 2 o'clock to 3.30 Eastern time. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at FlyOnTheWallPod or shoot us a message at FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. See you next Sunday.